Welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and I'm joined once again by Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. We've been talking about the book of Daniel, and today, Alistair, we're up to chapter four. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. It's always a pleasure to have you. Now, what happens in chapter four of the book of Daniel? So to this point, we've had a number of stories that remind us of Babel, and this is a further one. It is the story of a second dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, another troubling dream. This time he doesn't go and ask people what the dream is. Um, rather, he delivers the message of his dream. Now, Daniel, for some reason, is not present. And we might speculate as to why Daniel is left out of the people to whom the dream is told. But the dream is of this great tree that rises up and and reaches almost to heaven and spreads out and gives shelter to all these different creatures. Now, the watcher comes down, inspects it and cuts it down and binds it with a band of bronze. And in the end, it is seen that the, the dream refers to Nebuchadnezzar himself, as Daniel is finally told, and he's the one who interprets it, a dream which none of the others could interpret. So there are many ways in which this might remind us of the story of chapter two, but it develops from it in different ways. And here there is a twist to the tale as Nebuchadnezzar himself is cast out from human society, takes on a sort of animal-like appearance, and is then, after a period of seven, he's restored to his, oh. his rule and confesses the rule of the Lord. Num number, the number seven again. Uh, what are some of the other significant numbers in, in this chapter? We've got seven, and I think uh, James Jordan is also focused on the number four as well. The number four is a common one within the, the story of Daniel, and it seems that um, it would most naturally represent four corners, whether that's the four corners of the altar or the four corners of the world, or the four winds of heaven, it seems to suggest the totality of creation. Within this chapter, I think we have that same sort of concern with the attempt to bring everything together. So we've seen that in the, the different metals in the preceding two chapters. We've also seen it in the image of the cosmic mountain in chapter two, the stone that grows to be a mountain that fills the earth. So there's the four corners of the mountain, and it's also the way in which the mountain reaches from the heavens at its peak to the earth at its base. And in the same way, there's this attempt to bring everything together. And the cosmic tree of chapter four, I think, corresponds with the cosmic imagery of chapter two. And so once again, with the number seven, uh, we have a, a pattern of creation and decreation, or in Nebuchadnezzar's case, decreation and then recreation. Yes, and, and it recalls, I think, a number of places in scripture where we have similar things described, a period where someone is removed and then restored, I think most particularly would remind me of Leviticus chapter 14, and the laws concerning someone who's, who has leprosy and their cleansing. So the law of the leprous person given in chapter 14, verses one and following, and the way in which the um, cleansing water needs to be sprinkled seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. You should pronounce him clean and let the living, living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all of his hair 
and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. There are a number of other details there that would seem to present Nebuchadnezzar as like a leper or a leprous figure who's being restored. And the shaving off is, is similar to that of a, a leprous person being restored to the camp. Mm, there's a lot of animal imagery too, isn't there, with it, which we'll come on to deal with in a minute, uh, because that's all significant. How does chapter four finally establish who the true king of this new empire really is? Well, to this point, there's been this rivalry between Nebuchadnezzar and the Lord, and he's given certain ground in his confessions of the preceding chapters. But here we have what I think is nothing less than a conversion. So while he might give ground to the Lord's sovereignty previously, this is a great God. Now we see that he acknowledges the Lord in his truth and his authority. And the dream and the prophecy that he was fighting against previously, whether in his attempt to build up this great image of gold as a response to the dream of chapter two, at this point, he's giving in. And I think these chapters belong together as a sequence where we're seeing the humbling of human empires. We see the theme of Babel. They're also held together linguistically because they're all in Aramaic. There's a sort of chiastic structure that leads us from chapter two to seven in that Aramaic section. Chapter two with the four different parts corresponds with chapter seven with the four different beasts and both of them concerned with great human empires. Chapter three with chapter six um, where there's the fiery furnace and there's the lion's den and both these attempts to bring people together through false worship and then chapters four and five united at the center and I think united because they are the climax of the story where the Lord really demonstrates his sovereignty over all of the pretenders and supposed powers. There's a contrast also between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar so this chapter two, though, chapter four is chiastic in itself. Chapter four. I think so. It's been a while since I looked at it. The chiastic structure, though. We should talk and we should do a podcast about chiastic structures. I started to talk about this with, uh, I think it was Nicholas Petrovsky. The discussion went on for some time, but it's a, it's a fascinating subject. Chiasms. There's so much there. And yes. sometimes you'll find it's just a single um, sentence that has a chiastic structure. It's often just a poetic feature. Um, and it's something that you'll see used in modern literature too. I mean, you think of Winston Churchill's expression, I've taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me. That's a chiasm. But we can think of larger chiasms if you're reading the story of the flood. There's a chiasm in numbers. And there's chiasm literary, on the literary level. I'd recommend looking up Gordon Wenham's um, commentary on this. Um, he actually has an article, I think, on the chiasm in the flood story. But you see a chiasm in the numbers. Seven days, seven days, 40 days, 150 days. God remembers Noah. 150 days, 40 days, seven days, seven days. And it seems quite fitting because it's waters rising and falling, which is a chiastic structure itself. Mm. What does Nebuchadnezzar actually learn about God as this chapter progresses? He learns something about himself and he learns something about God. And I think Calvin's statement about the knowledge of God and the knowledge of oneself being reciprocally, reciprocally related um, makes sense here. Nebuchadnezzar learns what he is not and he learns what God is um, in terms of sovereignty. He learns 
the way in which he needs to be postured towards the Lord. If he's going to be a true man, um, he becomes bestial as a result of his rebellion against God and his heart being lifted up. And there is a reversal of his heart. You might even think about this as I was reading a section of Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, and he plays upon the fact that um, Babel is Levab backwards. So it's a play upon the heart being reversed. So if there's something of that going on, maybe the changing of his heart is um, playing in, in that way. But that would be very speculative. But yeah. We, yes, we can throw out these speculative suggestions can, and just see if there's anything more to them. We don't mm. put any too much weight upon them. No, but he's also learning how to be God's ruler too in this chapter, isn't yes. it? And what it means to rule this empire that God's put him in charge of for a temporary time. You mentioned the cosmic tree. Can we come on and talk about the, the whole biblical theology behind the tree image here? Where does it start? You see trees all throughout scripture, perhaps especially in Genesis, we have at the very beginning, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, of knowledge of good and evil. But trees have a number of different features that make them powerful symbols. If you think of the ancient world, trees would be some of the tallest things that people would see. So they connect earth and heaven. They provide shade and shelter. They provide sustenance, food from every tree of the garden. You can think about the ways in which they are also landmarks. They help you to remember things. So if you're thinking about the story of Genesis, you'll often go through that story. You'll have the Oaks of Mamre, the Oaks of More, you'll have the Terebinth that Shechem, you'll have a series of these different things. And then there will be occasions where trees are planted in order to remember something. We're told, for instance, that there are 70 palms at Elam. Later on, at Terebinth, I think it's the Terebinth at Shechem, we find that the same place that Jacob buried the idols of his household is the place where Joshua and the people make a covenant to serve the Lord at the very end of the book of Joshua. There's a sort of movement, full circle, back to the point of the origin and remembering the Lord at that place. Now, every time you see that tree, you remember what happened there. And so trees do a number of those sorts of things. Trees also in their power and their might can represent then the many things that great empires can do. So we see this in places like Ezekiel chapter 17 or Ezekiel 31, the image of the vine, the image of the great cedar. You have Jesus' um, parable of the mustard seed that grows into this great tree that fills the earth and the birds can nest in its branches. We can think about the way that trees are symbols of persons. He shall be like a tree planted by the streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, but whatsoever he does prospers. And that's contrasted with the wicked who do not have the solidity in the grounding, but are blown away like the chaff. At the very end of scripture, you once again see the tree of life and its leaves being for the healing of the nation. So Christ, of course, um, hangs upon a tree. He's hung up in a way that attracts people's attention. He's lifted up. And in all of these images, I think we're seeing different aspects of the tree symbolism. Now the tree reaches up, but also stretches out with its branches. And so in the same way as the mountain that reaches up to heaven and also stretches out with its base, it is a symbol of the joining together of things, the joining together of all the beasts that gather beneath it, the birds that nest in its branches, and then 
the gathering together of heaven and earth. In the book of Isaiah, we have lots of tree imagery, as there are great forests that are felled by the axe of Assyria, or you can have the branch, uh, the root that comes up from dry ground, the um, root from the, the stump and the root of Jesse and that's springing up and bringing new life. So it can be a symbol of empires, it can be a symbol of the righteous. It is connected with the temple itself. The temple is a grove of trees and places of worship were often associated with trees. When Abraham goes to trees, he generally builds an altar there. When Abraham is with the three visitors in um, chapter 18 of Genesis, he, they eat beneath the tree and he stands beneath the tree while they eat. And there seems to be some religious significance then to the sight of the tree. Does the tree in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision go back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, do you think? We could perhaps see some sort of connection there. Um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is connected with rule and authority. And this is that sort of tree. It represents this powerful empire and this rule of someone who actually it ends up being personified because the tree being felled is a person being felled. Yes, and Just as Nebuchadnezzar yeah. is seen as he's the head, but he's also the whole, he stands for the whole of his empire. Mm. So Nebuchadnezzar's the tree here. Yes. How does Nebuchadnezzar's vision relate to Ezekiel chapter 17? So we have in Ezekiel a number of ways in which tree imagery is used for empires. We have it in chapter 31, but also in 17 with the taking of the part of the vine and, and the relocation of it. So this seems to be an image that's very much in keeping with whether it's the image of Assyria in chapter 31 or the image of the vine and the eagles in um, chapter 17. It is playing with existing imagery and imagery that would have been familiar to the Babylonians. The tree is a very fitting natural image for a powerful empire. How does the tree fit in with the great cosmic tree that you were alluding to earlier? Well, it's another Babel image. The power of Babel, the attempt of Babel was to build a city and a tower, something reaching up and also something reaching out and gathering all people together. And the mountain is, in one way, a response to that. It's a true tower that reaches to heaven and it also gathers things together with the four corners of the earth. And the tree is a similar sort of thing. It reaches up really high. It's a towering image. We've had a series of towering images in these three chapters, and it seems one after another, these images are going to be brought down. The Babels are going to be frustrated. And I think what we see in the description of the way in which it's, it's brought down, this watcher coming down is very similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 11 with the Lord seeing, let us go down and confuse their languages. So you have the decision of the builders, let us build, and then the Lord let us go down in response to it. And this is a similar sort of thing. The Lord is proving his sovereignty in response to this hubristic attempt to, uh, of man to establish his sovereignty. Yeah, and so what is Nebuchadnezzar learning then about his position in this, if I can call it the restoration empire? Yeah, so I think it can be helpful to read this against the um, statements that we find in chapter seven concerning the first um, beast. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and as it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. 
Now, we have in scripture a number of images of guardian beasts. You have the four beasts in chapter seven. You have the cherubim in um, Ezekiel chapter one and that vision and elsewhere also in the later chapters. And those living creatures or cherubim are images, I think, here of empires. And what you see in this case, I think, is Nebuchadnezzar taking on features of the cherubim, reducing him to his proper status, but then elevating him from that. So he takes on eagle-like figures. He takes on lion-like figures. He takes on features like the ox, but then he's made to be like a man. His heart is restored to him. And so he becomes the full, this is what the cherubim beast, the guardian beast is supposed to be. And so he's brought low in order to be raised up as a true man and guardian at the end of it. And so the, the living creatures, the guardian beasts that we see in Daniel or in Ezekiel or Revelation, they are guardian beasts around the throne of the Lord. They can, we have terrible um, guardian beasts that have gone wrong in the monsters, but we also have the fact that these guardian beasts can be good. And in Nebuchadnezzar, I think you see an example of the tamed monster, the monster as it ought to be, as the guardian of God's people and throne. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because he gets this vision and then he's looking out over Babylon and says, ah, this is all mine. I am the Lord of what, a bit like, it always reminds me a bit of Davros in the, in the Daleks, the Lord of the Daleks. I have supreme power in the universe. And at that point, bang, God steps in and says, no, you don't. And you're right, he is really, he's decreated, isn't he? He's made like an animal. So it's like a kind of reversal of creation. Yes. Uh, you might also think maybe of the pride of David before his fall, looking out from his rooftop. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. No. Why are we told that Nebuchadnezzar would be drenched by the dew of the heavens? What's the significance of that? I would connect it with the image of being washed with the water in lepros in the rites for leprosy. He's going to be cleansed. Um, and so in one way, it's part, it seems like part of the judgment. He's being cast out like um, Cain and also like the serpent. He's being reduced to the ground, um, cast out from among men as the serpent was cast out from the beasts. He's also the seven uh, maybe connects with the um, judgment upon Cain. But there's also a positive element to it because you, as you're drenched with the dew of heaven, the dew of heaven is connected with the blessing of rain and with sprinkling. And you have the sprinkling of the leprous person leads to their being readmitted to the camp. And that's what I think takes place here. He's shorn, he is washed, and then he can be restored to his humanity. Mm. And so it's an image of baptism, among other things. I was going to ask you about that. Is it, is it an image of baptism? Is he decreated and then recreated as a sort of new Noah? Are there, is there a flood imagery going on here as well? I would need to think about that a bit more. I haven't noticed one, but I haven't really looked carefully. So there might well be one. I mean, you can think of all the animal symbolism. Yes. Um, there would certainly be the possibility of something there. What's the significance of Nebuchadnezzar's hair growing there? Is there any significance to that? The fact that his hair grows in the ways that it's described, like eagle's feathers, it connects him with the cherubim, because you have the eagle, the lion, the ox, and the man. And so he's like the bird, the eagle with the claws and with the hair. And his hair growing also is like a Nazarite, perhaps, and the cleansing of the Nazarite, but also 
the fact that when you're cleansing someone from leprosy, they have to shave off all of their hair. It would seem to be a, a further connection with that right. So can we try and sum it all up? Uh, what is actually happening to Nebuchadnezzar here? What's he learning? He's learning who is God and who is man. And he's being, I think this is a positive instance of the judgment of Babel. This is not the judgment of Babel as an utter destruction. It's a humiliation from which someone is actually raised up again. He's given the heart of a man. He's restored to his true status. And as a result, that lesson which we've seen throughout these chapters, the king is frustrated. The king can't even control his own, his own regime. He finds himself distrusting the Chaldeans. He finds himself frustrated by the dream that he has and its interpretation. And then he can't even get all the people to bow. He realizes that the plan that he had to get everyone to express loyalty to him actually ends up turning against him because jealous people within his court use it to fight against the, um, the faithful Hebrews. Now, that was never his intention with the decree. He ends up being maneuvered into a position by words that have gone out of his mouth. And so his even in his great attempts to get power for himself, he proves insufficient. And yet the Lord can prove his power, even through the means by which he would prove his strength, whether it's the, the fiery furnace or whether it's in the way that he's brought down and then raised up again. And he becomes in the moment of his pride, he's humiliated. But then the Lord will actually elevate him and use him. So there's a more general message here, I think, that's not just about Nebuchadnezzar. It's a message for all human kingdoms. It's a message that I think has great relevance for every single perennial re relevance for human society, because we all have the experience of seeing empires and kingdoms that have pretensions for themselves, that have ideas above their station, that don't rec recognize that really at most they are supposed to be guardians. They are not the true lords of all. All authority and power does not ultimately rest in their hands. And even their greatest attempts to control will end up proving insufficient. So there's a message of humbling, but not humbling that will actually lead to destruction. If that message is actually taken, it can be a means of lifting up. Yeah, doesn't it begin as a become a kind of new Adam? Uh, in that sense, is, does he point to Jesus? Yeah, so one of the curious things of this passage is the way in which you have, um, for instance, the description, the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, etc., and then cast out from among men, living among the beasts of the field, uh, washed, etc. You have something very similar in the book of Mark, where the, the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ, and Christ is cast out, mm -hmm. and he lives among the beasts. And there's the washing in that context as well of his baptism. So is there a sense in which Christ is taking the judgment of the empire upon himself and he's becoming um, as the true one who's going to inherit it, the one who takes upon himself the fate of the empires and he's actually going to raise it up as his own new empire? I don't know. But a number of commentators have recognized that there seems to be something going on here. The text does seem to be playing upon the background of Daniel chapter four, but it's puzzling to work out what exactly is going on. So if any of your listeners have any thoughts on the question, I'd love to I'd email love to us. hear them. Please email us. 
Yes, our email address is on the on the podcast on our webpage is by means. Let's have a discussion about it. I find all this absolutely fascinating. One last question before we go. How does the tree point forward to the kingdom of God? How does Jesus pick up this tree image in the Gospels? The great example is we have two, a pair of parables. You have the leaven that works throughout the whole loaves. And then you also have the tree that grows from a mustard seed to become this mighty tree that fills and um, gives refuge and shade and shelter to animals and to birds of the air. Now, that's an image of an empire beginning from surprising beginnings. It's not people read it thinking that mustard trees don't grow that big. Well, that's kind of the point. This is a surprising tree. It's a miraculous tree. It's a tree that defies all human expectation. This is like the stone that grows to become a great mountain. It's a little mustard seed that would typically give rise just to a smaller shrub, and now it ends up this great tree that fills the earth. The cosmic tree is the kingdom of God. And so you have principles of growth with the secret principle of the leaven, and also the miraculous, um, remarkable principle of that which is small and seems beyond Need, any need to recognize it it's the smallest of, of the seeds but becomes this mighty tree that is the true empire and so i think jesus is teaching there about the fact that it's not actually the one that you think is the most auspicious of the seeds that becomes this great tree rather it's the small one and that theme of humility i think that we have in this chapter is one that maybe could be connected with jesus teaching if you think about the way that the king was supposed to be in Deuteronomy, not to have his heart lifted up above his brothers, to recognize his own humanity, his own limits, his own um, origins, and as a result, to recognize who he is. And as we go through the book of Isaiah, for instance, we see this great tree that has been cut down. It seems beyond its root, beyond its stump even. You're down beyond David down to the root of Jesse itself. And it seems that there's no hope, but yet this root arises out of dry ground, has no formal comeliness thing that would recommend it to us, seem to um, promise great growth, but in the end it becomes this mighty kingdom and the tree that replaces the felled forests and fills the whole earth is going to arise from the most surprising location. It's going to be a sort of resurrection now, there is a sort of resurrection here in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, a washing and then a restoration, and this tree presumably growing again. But we have an even greater restoration of the tree as the kingdom of David seemingly cut down entirely, David's dynasty wiped out um, or removed completely from its authority. The body of David is raised up in Christ and now seated at God's right hand. And this in Christ is truly a tree that reaches from heaven to earth. Christ is the one who connects heaven and earth. He rules at God's right hand, but he is the one who, like the um, ladder of Jacob, um, and he says to Nathaniel, you'll see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Christ is the one who is the true Tower of Babel, um, but not the false Babel. He is the gate of God, the one who leads us to God. And as we come to Christ, we'll find that he is the tree of life. He's the one who connects heaven and earth. And as he is lifted up, he will draw all peoples to himself. 
in a way that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon could never do. And I guess the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate cosmic tree, the fulfillment of the cosmic tree image, as indeed he's the fulfillment of all that pagan imagery, really. Yes, he's the one from whom we, of whom we eat and live forever. He's the tree of life. He's also the tree of rule, the knowledge of good and evil, the one who brings wisdom and um, the one who has died and risen again. He's the one who will endure forever. That tree will never come to an end. Wonderful. Mighty stuff. Thank you once again, Alistair Roberts. Now, just before we go, Alistair, where can people find you on the net and social media? I have a website devoted to my podcasts and biblical reflections. I'm currently finishing off my series on the whole Bible, chapter by chapter commentary. And so you can check that out at adversariapodcast.com. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you back again, Alistair. God willing to talk about chapter five. Can't wait. Thank you. Fantastic. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.